Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. First Corinthians chapter 8, let's get to it. First Corinthians chapter 8, if you're using a chair Bible, that's found on page 673. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that and keep that. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible or maybe you just forgot it today because you were waking the sleep off, um, I really recommend that you get in the habit, if you're not ordinarily in the habit, of, of just having your Bible open and having it on your lap and following along with me as I preach. We, our habit here is to preach out of the Bible. We call it expositional preaching. That means we take a portion of the Bible and we just work through it. And we want to make the point of the passage, or I'm sorry, the point of the message, the point of the passage. And that's a vast majority of how we work through the scriptures here. Generally, we take a book of the Bible. In this case, we're in 1 Corinthians. We've been in it for a few months. Uh, we're at the midway point right now. I think this is the 18th or 19th message. And uh, we'll be in it until we finish or until Jesus comes back. And... Um, <laughs> I hope, I guess I hope the latter happens first, but anyway, uh, we, we're just plodding our way through it, and there's such a, a joy as a preacher, pastor, to not have to create stuff, not to pull a rabbit out of the hat each Sunday to try and impress you, and I, and I hope that it works in us as a congregation a certain security and joy that we know that what's next for us every Sunday is what is next in the divinely inspired Word of God, and um, so... We're not just doing that just to do it. We're doing it because we think uh, God would have us to do it that way. And so uh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 now to give you a little idea of where we're going over the next couple weeks. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 really sort of go together. Paul is making this point about how uh, this community, this particular church, the Corinthian church, should live together in a sort of deep and abiding humility, being more concerned about one another than they are about even their own rights and freedom in the Lord. And so over the next couple of weeks, we'll hear the words, our rights. In fact, if you read chapter 9, which we'll cover partially next week, the word rights, my rights or your rights is mentioned like eight or nine times. And the point Paul is making is that this community, which has been previously very selfish and is sort of caught up in self-absorption, and carnality and sin, uh, he's trying to burrow his way into their hearts and say that there's something bigger than your freedom in Christ. There is the, the concern that we should have for one another, and then the concern that we should have as our corporate witness as a church for the advance of the gospel. And so these next few chapters really hit on that issue. I, I think these are going to be good community-building messages for us, and it'll also give us a little respite from the intensity of the last few weeks. We've talked about Sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage, sex inside of marriage, uh, divorce and remarriage, and last week we talked about singleness and heavy petting. And so um, I, I'm glad that we're kind of pushing away from that table just a little bit for the sake of just giving ourselves a breather from that. And, uh, but fear not, because once we get through these chapters, which we'll talk about 
uh, loving our brother more than ourselves, and then we'll talk about being Christians on mission, and then we'll talk about in chapter 10, fleeing idolatry. We'll ramp back up and talk about women and head coverings. So that'll be awesome. And then, and then we'll get into chapter 12 and speaking in tongues and hanging from the chandeliers. So it's going to be lots of fun, <laughs> lots of fun. Um, well, here's the situation. Let me orient you to this text before I read it. What I'm going to do is give you a little orientation, then I'll read it. And then we'll work our way back through it. I have four truths that I want to draw out of this text today, and then four questions that uh, I hope will help us build biblical community. But let me orient you to the text before we read it. Just 13 verses, chapter 8. What's going on is that Paul, well, let me even step back one further point than that. You know that this letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is responding to some problems in the church in Corinth. A couple years earlier, he had started this church. They had not heard the gospel. They were really no Christians in this town except for himself and two, a, a couple that were also tent makers that he joined up with and started a church. And, and then the Lord told him to trust his grace and sovereignty because he had many people in this city who were not yet Christians but that would become Christians through Paul's witness. And so they start this church. The church gets off the ground, and it, as was Paul's custom, he then moved on to uh, several other towns in the Roman Empire to plant churches. And so the church is going, and it's growing, and it's becoming a house church. It's a, probably a much smaller group of people than are in this room right now. But they are experiencing trouble. Sin is starting to creep in, and they're selfish, and they are uh, veering off into uh, factions. They're starting to follow leaders. There's little groups, little, um, little uh, popular uh, pockets within the church forming around particularly charismatic personalities. And then people are just busted up with all sorts of the normal sins of the flesh that we are today. But they were also very gifted. So they had a lot of spiritual gifts that they were starting to use solely for their own advancement rather than the advancement of the gospel. And so what's happened is this church that started well is, has turned into this mess of human sin, idolatry, and selfishness. And Paul is hearing about this from some of his associates. And he's also very likely received a letter, not likely, we know that he has received a letter from the Corinthian church, at least some in the church, saying, hey, there are some problems, you need to come back and straighten this thing out. And so 1 Corinthians is his letter back to their letter. And so in this letter, they're addressing many issues, and one of the things that some of the Christians within the Corinthian church have brought up is that, hey, uh, we are, uh, we're all Christians here in this church, but some of us came out of very pagan uh, uh, environments where we were worshiping false gods, Zeus or Artemis or, or whatever, and in those Greek false religions that dominated the setting in Corinth, they would often uh, worship these false gods by sacrificing animals to them and by sacrificing uh, meat to them and by offering food to these false gods. And so there were these pagan temples that existed in Corinth and right next to the pagan temples was basically the local Bert's butcher shop. So they would sacrifice this animal. But they, I mean, that was a delicacy in the day. So you wouldn't just sacrifice the, the cow and let it rot to the false god, which they didn't know was false. They would then sacrifice it and then eat. I mean, we're going to get a couple fillets out of this mug. And so they would sacrifice it, give some of it, burn it. And then the choice cuts, then they would either have a, like a party in the house right next to the temple, or they would sell it. And so much of the food, primarily much of the meat in the city of Corinth, was very likely at one point sacrificed and offered to 
an idol or a false god. And so now these people have become Christians. They have come out of this environment. And now what's happened is the Corinthian church is sort of a strange, beautiful, eclectic mix of people who have been Christians for a long time, people who have been Christians for just a short time, of people who are very wealthy, and also people who are maybe on the lower rung of the socioeconomic ladder. And so the people that are a little bit more wealthy, that are running around in kind of the higher echelon of society, still sort of mingling with their friends that have these little formerly, you know, filet mignon previously offered to Zeus now steak party, are, are still going to these parties, and they've been Christians for a while, and they're like, hey, we know that these gods are false, and so some of these less mature, weaker Christians in the group are saying to us that we can't eat this meat because it was sacrificed to an idol, but Paul, you know that there's no such thing as an idol, so why can't we eat this meat? Which, in a sense, is true. But Paul then corrects them and says that there, there's, there's even a deeper principle here going on than just your freedom in Christ. And so what's going on here is there is a sort of internal dispute between, let's just call them for the sake of arguments here, uh, stronger Christians and weaker Christians. Stronger, and listen, we are both at various times in our lives part of both of those groups. There are these stronger Christians who have a little bit better understanding of the doctrine of freedom in Christ, that there really are no idols. And then you have these maybe newer, younger, weaker Christians who have come out of that pagan culture more recently who are potentially being tripped up by the freedom and the witness of these stronger Christians who are eating this meat that was previously offered to idols. So does that make sense kind of to you? I hope so. What, no, I ask those rhetorical questions like I'm just going to stand up and say, no, can you go over that again? <laughs> Just one of those rhetorical devices you do for a transition. I hope you understand. All right, well, let's, let's read uh, 1 Corinthians 8. I'm going to read it all the way through, and uh, then we'll pray, and then we'll work our way back through it. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that, this is quotation, so he's quoting back to them something from their letter. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Again, he's quoting back to them some lines that they've given him in their letter. Verse 5, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, quote, and many lords, quote, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And in their conscience, being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged 
if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. All right, before we pray, let's just admit that this is not an issue for us seemingly on the surface. I doubt that any of you, when you're in the checkout line at Publix or at Winn-Dixie, when they ask you whether you want paper or plastic, you say, well, wait a minute, I've got a question for you first. (laughs) Has any of the food that I am about to buy today been offered to an idol? (laughs) But as I hope we'll see in a moment, there are deep issues here about how we should love one another in the Lord. And so let's pray and ask the Lord for wisdom. Well, Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for the beautiful security that comes through faithfully plotting our way through your Bible, not starting with our own topics and then cherry-picking verses to support our man-made presuppositions. But thank you for your divinely inspired word that is profitable for us, for all instruction and training, teaching and godliness. Your word doesn't only instruct us and help us see you and your will and your character more clearly, it is also the mechanism through which you save us. Peter says in his letter that you caused us to be born again by the living and abiding word of God. And ultimately, the word of God is not a set of principles whereby we can make better decisions But it is the living, eternal, incarnate Word of God. It is Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that from this written Word, the eternal Word, Christ Himself, would stand forth in our hearts and that Christians would be stirred in their affection for You and what You have done on the cross for us. As Paul so so clearly put a moment ago in in that transition before that song we sang, Lord God, would you anchor our hearts into the gospel and not just helpful techniques for better community. Would you help us see that we desperately need to love Jesus more and respond to Jesus more because he absorbed your wrath on the cross for our sin and calls us all now to repentance and trust and life. And Lord, for the person in this room who does not know you, whether they realize it, or not, whether they've been lulled to sleep by a false representation of the gospel and they need to be awakened to your truth, or whether they are clear about their spiritual status, that they have not yet believed in you. I pray, God, that today, even as we focus a little bit more internally on how we as Christians should treat one another, that today you might cause them in your kindness to see Jesus in all his beauty, and they would turn from trusting in themselves, and they would trust in you alone, and that you would make that heart which is dead come alive. And Lord, I pray that you'd do this for the sake of your glory and the good of your people. And Lord, even as we're gathering now in safety and freedom and tranquility, we do think about our brothers and sisters and the people in Japan. We do ask, God, that you would take this very terrible tragedy and work your good, or that somehow you would pour out your kindness on Japan as this event might cause 
people in that nation to turn and see Jesus and that you might encourage the Christians there that they would be a light in a terrible time. Help us now, Lord, as we think about these words, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, four quick truths to draw out of this and then four questions for biblical community. Paul writes in the first couple verses that he admits that there is this knowledge, but he, he reminds these Corinthians that this knowledge that they have, this stronger group of Christians, that this knowledge that they have is true, but the way that they're living it out is not really as helpful as it could be. And so what is this knowledge? This knowledge isn't the great overarching knowledge of the gospel of what Jesus has done for us, but this knowledge is a more a more secondary knowledge of that Jesus, in his work on the cross, has freed us from idols. There is no such thing as an idol. Idols are false. Zeus is just a statue. He's just a myth. And, and so what Paul is saying is, is that, yes, stronger Christians, in a sense, you are right. There is no idol. But the way that you are working out, living out this truth, is causing potential trouble in the life of a brother. And so point number one that is clear in this truth is he, as he says that this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, is that knowledge should produce humility and love, not pride. Knowledge, whatever it is, whether it is the knowledge that you can eat filet mignon to the glory of God, no matter what butcher shop it's been cut up in, or whether it is some doctrinal piece of knowledge that you may have that a other brother or sister does not have, should produce in us a sort of deep and abiding humility. This is, listen, I don't think our issue is whether or not we can eat meat, but I think there's more subtle and potentially even just as dangerous issues in us. We're a church, if you haven't noticed, that really cares deeply about truth. Um, we are, the whole deal here is the centrality of the Word of God, and so where for much of the church in America, doctrine has become a, ba- a bad, sort of dirty, divisive word. We think it's a good and healthy word. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. He says that in doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so I think that there is some clear truth in an age of plurality and postmodernism, that things that we should know and hold on to, and that we should, we should apply to our hearts and that we should be decisive about and we as biblical Christians should have the courage to say that this is the truth and this is what you should know. And then from that gospel, from that good news, flows all sorts of secondary truth which, which, which is good and helpful for us. And what happens in a church and a group of people oftentimes that are pursuing knowledge, want to know more about Jesus, want to dive into the deep things of the word, is that this very pursuit of theirs becomes sort of the end rather than the means to get to the end. And then this piece of knowledge becomes a sort of spiritual sort of uh, uh, pride thing that then we then prop ourselves up against a brother. And so it becomes kind of like, well, I I know this, and so my subconscious sort of air towards a brother is, is I, well, look, I play on Friday nights, man. JV? No, you don't know that yet? You got Thursday nights, uh, 6 o'clock. There'll be a couple parents in the stands, but, but if you know this particular aspect of theology or whatever, we, we play on Friday nights, and we get to wear our jerseys on Friday before. And there's this, of course, no, nobody would say that, but there's just these subtle avenues of pride that work themselves into a Christian's heart and in a community. 
And I think what Paul is saying here in this context to those people that realize that there are no idols and they can eat whatever they want, and Paul says, I affirm that, that's true, but then don't let that produce in you sort of a selfish, pompous, arrogant humility whereby what has become the end for you is solely your freedom in Christ. No, no, the end should be then that would produce in us more Christ-likeness so that our brothers and sisters and, and an onlooking, unbelieving world can see this sort of radical Christ-centered humility in our midst so that they too wouldn't pursue just a piece of knowledge, but they would pursue Christ. And so the first point that I believe Paul brings out is that knowledge, whatever it is, whether it's the fact that you can eat a steak or that you know some deep point of theology, whatever it is, it should produce in us humility and love, not pride. Let's be honest. Christians that know just a little bit can be some of the most cantankerous, prideful, snobby little snots you've ever been around. <laughs> Can't we do that? Aren't we? Let's just confess that. And what does that spring from? Actually not confidence, but deep insecurity. Doesn't it really? When we act like that, don't we just sort of, we, we, we display really our deep insecurity when we become puffed up on some little point of knowledge. Okay, so, so young men, so you've read every John Piper book. Congratulations. That and about $14 will get you a terrible cup of coffee at Starbucks. Great, 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 great. Okay, good. So you have read the Puritan John Owens, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. So you have read Calvin's Institutes and Jonathan Edwards' works, and you know every song that John Wesley wrote, and you have the Reformation and its history and Augustine's confessions memorized. Unless that sinks down in your heart and produces a deep humility and self-abasement and longing for Christ, it is, it is a, a, he'll say in chapter 13, a, just a resounding symbol, a bunch of noise that just messes up everybody's ability to truly hear. Yeah, I'm talking to myself on that one because I have read every Piper book. <laughs> all right, let's keep going. Verse 4. haven't read those other things all the way through, though. Verse 4, therefore, as to the eating of idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. So he's saying, yeah, I'm quoting back to you. Realize that's in quotes. You may be working from a translation where that's not in quotes, but he's saying, yes, yes, I agree with you. These idols are not real. There's no God but one God. Verse 5, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. And again, he's in quotation, so he's not contradicting himself. He's not saying there are no real idols, but yeah, then there are gods and lords. He's saying, but, but in reality, there are these sort of idols that exist in our culture that we know are false. And then he gives one of these beautiful lines that has become a sort of creed of the church. And we believe this may be the first time that Paul wrote it. And he may have actually been reciting to them a sort of a chant or a creed that was circulating around in the first century church. He says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. Listen to the sweeping beauty of this statement. For from whom are all things and for whom we exist 
and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. In other words, everything exists for Jesus. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of that Abraham Kuyper quote that we quote often. I believe it's in the loop of quotes before our service. Abraham Kuyper was the uh, prime minister of the Netherlands, and he was a Dutch theologian in the, around the turn of the century, last turn of the century, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. And he said that there is not one square inch of this universe over all that is that Jesus does not rightly cry mine. And Paul is saying that in this text. What a beautiful sentence. And he's saying, but in verse 7, not all of us strong people possess this knowledge. Because you see, there's some people in our church who through former association with idols, in other words, they've been so junked up in this idol worship and they've maybe just become Christians that when they eat food as offered to an idol, they are at a point of their development in their maturity in the Lord where they're not able to separate out and say, oh, well, this is no big deal. And so for them, although we admit that there are no real idols, if they see you partaking of this food and they're still sort of figuring out this just one God thing, then when they participate in that, they may actually be thinking in their minds that, Really, they are eating food offered to an idol. And so even the fact that we know there's clearly no idols, they actually could be in their hearts actually living that way. And by your bad example, you're encouraging them to do that. So that brings us to point number two. And it is that idols don't really exist except in our hearts, right? Idols don't really exist except the ones that we just manufacture in our hearts that junk us up. And, you know, we, we sort of look with, as C.S. Lewis calls it, chronological snobbery at the past and say, oh, those, those silly little pagans in the first century sacrificing cows to Zeus. I mean, come on, how silly is that? But really, friends, how, how much more silly is that than our crazy little idols? I mean, we ch- chase after social status and, you know, little toys that make us feel better compared to other people and good looks and diet pills. I mean, come on, at least, I actually think the joke's on us. I mean, at least they got a steak out of their idol. You know what I mean? All we get is a car payment or a blown up mortgage or, you know, some stupid tans. When we're 45 years old, we look like a raisin because we've been just obsessed with beauty all our lives. (laughs) They got a filet mignon. They're looking at us saying, you're the clown. Have you considered what your idols are? Are you aware of the subtlety of our culture? Are you aware of the depth of human fallenness and depravity? And even though you may be a Christian... Are you aware that there's a whole lot of untangling and sanctification that still needs to happen in our hearts? And are you just aware of the things that so seductively allure your soul away from satisfaction in Christ? Idols aren't real, except in our hearts, where they're also false. 
but they so easily lead us astray. Are you aware of your idols? All right, let's keep going. Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. Come on, it's not what you eat. We're no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care, strong Christian, that this right of yours to eat whatever you want, because we know that there's no true idol, and therefore this meat has not really been offered to an idol. So he says, take care that, yes, in a sense, this right of yours to eat whatever you want does not then somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees that you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so what's going on here is something deeper than just a strong Christian who, uh, who you know, has handled, is able now to have this conversation with Robert. This was a good illustration that he gave me when we were talking about this text on Thursday or Friday. And I don't know if it was a personal illustration because he just graduated from college at the University of Georgia, but um, it, this, uh, this, this context of maybe a Christian who's able to han- handle alcohol responsibly. And uh, you, can, you can have a drink and it not be a sin for you, but there's maybe a brother in your life who just graduated from the University of Georgia or Auburn or wherever, and um, they just were getting smashed on Friday nights at frat parties and sorority parties, and now they have become a Christian. And now they see you drinking, and, and now it becomes sort of a confusing thing for them. And so, but what's going on here in this text is even deeper than that. See, the point that Paul is making is he's saying, look, it's okay to eat meat, or it's okay to have a glass of wine. But he's saying that there's something deeper here. You may be causing your brother not just to think that that's okay, but it's, it's even deeper than that. You may be causing your brother to really blur the lines of the of the sufficiency of Christ, you're, you're, you're not just causing this person to think that something that's not good for them in their particular context is now okay, but in this context, their conscience is so weak, they are still so immature that they're actually eating this food as offered to a real idol. And so they're, they're still coming out of this paganism and they're so vulnerable that it's not just a matter of what Christians can and cannot do. This person is still in a vulnerable state to where they're not really clear on the sufficiency of God and his lordship over this earth. And they could potentially fall back into this sort of pagan false religion. That's what's on the line here. So it's bigger than just giving a good example of what Christians cannot and cannot do. And then he says something really serious in verse 11. And 12, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Which brings us to our third point. When we sin, when we live without wisdom, we don't just sin against each other, we sin against Jesus. I mean, we are Americans, man. We are autonomous, self-determining, individualistic balls of self-absorption. I am the captain of my own soul. Every man, I mean, we are, we are, the, we are the sons of people who, who pioneered the West. No, actually, that's just me. You guys stayed in Georgia, but my people actually took... We pioneered, no, my people didn't do that. They came on a boat several hundred years later. But the point is, is that we, it's just my plot of land, man, my rights, my rights. 
And so we think that if there's some brush up between us and, hey, maybe I've rubbed you the wrong way. Maybe I caused you to skin your knee, but you'll get over it. Come on. Pick yourself up. Dust yourself off. You're an American too. Come on. There's courts. There's a constitution. There's, there's, there's some equality here. Come on. Do it. Look, we're Americans. It'll be okay. But Paul takes it much deeper than that. He's saying that when we become Christians, we become citizens of something far bigger than America. We become connected to one another in such a deep and abiding internal way that if a brother is wounded, I'm wounded. If a sister is discouraged, I'm discouraged. Do you see how radical this is for the silo mentality of the American Christian to view one another in community and culture in such a way that when we sin, we sin against Christ and his body and one another. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, when, when someone mourns, we should all mourn with them. And when someone rejoices, we should all rejoice with them. Let's just step back for a moment and just confess our radical and pervasive individuality, which is an enemy to biblical community in the gospel. Friends, that's why it is so important as best we can for us to know each other for us to not just gather in a room on Sunday. And listen, I realize that the church is growing and that there's more people in this room than you could possibly have a deep relationship with. And that as we grow as a church, we'll have to do wise things about how we can build community and we can really know one another. But would you pray for us as, a, as leaders along those lines? And would you, can, would you apply pressure to your own life to not be satisfied with this sort of consumeristic, individualistic brand of Christianity whereby you sort of dart in and dart out, don't really know anybody. You hear a couple principles. You hear about Jesus. Maybe it's a, a helpful, encouraging message from you. Maybe you like the music without really giving your heart to one another. Listen, I know that's a challenge. I know we are all wired differently. I know that social connection is easy for some, very difficult for others. And I know that sometimes we, we just you know, kind of assume that you should know what to do, but can we all just admit to the fact that if you're a Christian, you are more intrinsically and eternally bound to the Christian that is sitting next to you that may be from another country or another race or another culture than you are to your very own flesh and blood who does not know Jesus. And so within this room and within every local body of Christian churches, and then in a sort of universal sense, there should be this sort of radical, deep, abiding sense of community and connectedness so that when we sin and when we fall and when we go through life together, we're going through this together. Let's just confess that that is not our default position, and we have much work to do to get to that point. And let's just Let's just, in response, say, okay, let's, let's do this together. We don't just sin against each other. We sin against Jesus and his body, which is the church. And then verse 13. Therefore, if a food makes my brother stumble, listen to this. Paul is saying, in one sense, you're free to eat meat, man. Have the, have the Zeus fried chicken chuckwagon steak. Have it. Unless it might cause trouble for a fellow believer. So he says, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. 
So that brings us to the fourth point, which I think is the big point that Paul is making in this chapter. And it is that we should value one another over our own liberty. Are you free to eat meat? Yes. Are you free to have a glass of wine? Yes. Are you free to get a tattoo? If it's a good one. I mean, come on, don't, don't be stupid about it. Don't like have some scorpion crawling up your neck and then wonder why you don't get the job. <laughs> Are you free to do these things? Well, yeah, maybe. But is it the most helpful thing for the cause of Christ and for the sake of your brother? Maybe not. Maybe not. So we should value our own brother and sister's walk with Christ more than we do our own liberty. So here's four questions to end on. Four questions for biblical community. These are things that I hope you will write down, that I hope you'll discuss, and that I hope we will continually ask ourselves as we build a radically Christ-centered, biblically-informed culture here at Crosspoint. Question number one, what does the Bible allow? All right, our guide for life, our, our rule, our authority is the Scriptures. So when we're confronted with a question that might be a gray area, we must go to the Scriptures and say, well, well what does the Scripture say about that? Now, there are some nuances in life or situations in culture where the Bible will give us principles which to deal with it, but maybe give some freedom or some ambiguity or even some gray areas. In fact, Paul says in the Rome, to the Romans and then also to the Corinthians in some areas, he says, now, considering these disputable areas or these disputable manners, you should be guided by this particular principle. And so the point is, is that what is the Bible allowed? Does the Bible say that you have to pay your taxes? Yes. In about a month or so, April 15th is coming and you need to file your taxes. We can't just say that we don't agree with the direction of the United States government or we don't like the guy who's in office or whatever. We can't, we can't do that. They may be doing terrible things with our money. They may be completely, terribly inefficient with our money. But the scriptures are clear in Romans chapter 13 that we should obey civil authority. So should you file your taxes on April 15th or before? Yes, you should file your taxes. Uh, should you, uh, as we talked about in these past couple verses, uh, past couple chapters, should you engage in sex before marriage? No, you should not engage in sex before marriage. Uh, I hope that was not a question for you. If you are engaging in sex before marriage right now, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. There is more grace in him to overcome your flesh than there is power even in your own fallenness. So trust in Jesus. There's no condemnation. We're not going to drag you out, beat you with canes behind the church, and make you wear something on your head that says, you know, fornicator. We're not going to do that, but you should turn from your sin. That is clear. That is clear. And that's clear. Should you have a, a beer? Well, there's, there's no, uh, uh, contrary to maybe the efforts of some of the recent American fundamentalists in the past century or so, I don't think there's any biblical text that we can point to and say, no, you can't do this. But then that gets to our second question, okay? So first question is, what does the Bible allow? Does the Bible say yes or no on it? If the Bible's unclear about this, then it gets to our second question. What does my conscience allow? What does my conscience allow? And so for one Christian, partaking in that might be okay for them. 
having a glass of wine or getting a, a good tattoo. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. I don't want you guys to go get tattoos. I'm going to get some emails from angry parents. Don't get a tattoo. I think I, it's just, they're, they're ugly. Um, but the point is, is that what does your conscience allow? Right? So if the Bible does not speak clearly to this issue, then you need to ask yourself where your heart is. Did you have a glass of wine? Yeah, maybe. Is your dad an alcoholic? And was your grandfather an alcoholic? And was his daddy an alcoholic? And his daddy an alcoholic? And his daddy before that run moonshine? And they all wrecked their lives with alcohol? Well, maybe you should stay away from it, home slice. Did you have a whole bunch of trouble with it when you were in college? Maybe you should stay away from it. What does your conscience allow? That may be different for different Christians. Can I listen to secular music? Yes, just not country. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry. Send all my emails to robert at insidecrosspoint.com. <laughs> Is secular music bad? Well, some of it's horrible and will draw you away from Christ. Is a love song from Air Supply <laughs> that you might sing or have in the background when you and your wife are having a romantic dinner? Is that okay? <laughs> you better believe it. <laughs> But for some of you, maybe that secular song might conjure up memories of some sinful past. Is it good for you? No. No. So your conscience wouldn't allow that. And we can't point to a verse and say, no air supply. <laughs> but there's where... A situation where we've got to now take what the Bible allows and then apply it to our hearts with this principle of love for our brother or wisdom over our own hearts. And then it takes us to the third question. So first question is, what does the Bible allow? Secondly, what does my conscience allow? And thirdly, am I making my conscience into a law? Am I becoming a legalist? In my communion. Paul doesn't really address this, I don't think, in these texts, but in, I can anticipate him saying to the weak party, he was saying, Now, if you've been a Christian and now you have this knowledge, is now your conscience becoming a law? And so, if that air supply song causes you weakness, do you now expect every other Christian to no longer listen to secular music because you played? the eagle song backwards to Hotel California, and you think everything, has that got somebody's attention over there? And you think everything that doesn't have, you know, a Hosanna label on it or was once recorded by the Gaither vocal pan, it's all satanic. No. So is your conscience now becoming a law, a legalistic law that other Christians must abide by extra-biblically? Friends, that kills community. That kills community. Don't make your conscience into a law that other Christians must live by. Don't 
tighten up the noose of the clarity of God's word when it was never meant to be tightened up around that issue. And then that brings us to our fourth and final question, which is, I believe, this law of love that Paul is saying. Ultimately, here's the question that we need to drive down in our hearts. What is best for my fellow Christian or unbelieving friend? Not what's best for me, not what can I do, but what's best for the witness of the gospel, for maybe my less mature Christian friend in this area, or even potentially an unbelieving friend that might be viewing this circumstance. What's best? Am I free to do this in the gospel? Yes. Is this what's needed in this situation to advance the gospel? Maybe not. And so I am going to care more about the cause of Christ and the heart of a brother or sister or the witness to an unbelieving friend than my freedom to do this. That's the heart of a biblical community. I conclude with this. Christian, have you considered how deeply connected we really are? Are you living your life on a selfish island? Are you dead-ending on your own freedom in Christ? Are you dead-ending on your own freedom in Christ? And are you making your freedom your functional idol and thereby missing the greater truth of the display of Christ, which is where only true joy exists? Unbelieving friend or non-Christian in this room, do you realize that the most fundamental thing about us as Christians is not our stance on alcohol or tattoos or music or meat or this or that? Do you recognize that the most fundamental thing about us as Christians is what Paul said in that verse where he says, don't you realize that when you do this, you're causing the brother to potentially be destroyed for whom Christ died? Do you realize the most fundamental thing about us is not that we like Cross Point or that we're here or that we're members of the same church or that we enjoy this particular community. Do you realize the most fundamental thing about us is that we have been reconciled to a holy and righteous God because of Christ's death? Do you realize the world is separated into only two groups? Those for whom Christ has died for and they have repented and trusted in that and those that have not? Do you realize what is at stake here is not just church membership or helpful principles to be a good cozy community or better functional living or stances on secondary issues? Do you realize what is at stake here is the gospel the only piece of knowledge that really matters at all? Do you realize that as Paul wrote in verse 6 that everything exists for Jesus, everything flows from him, that you were made by him for his glory, and you will glorify God in your life, whether you are a Christian or not. You will either glorify God by trusting in his sacrifice for you, or you will glorify God by receiving his right wrath on your life for eternity because you did not trust in Christ. He will be justified. The question is, will you? 
Will you? Will you push past the silly little issues that American Christians divide themselves up over? Would you push past those things and would you see that there is a deeper and eternal abiding truth that everything splits into those for whom Christ died and have received it and those who have not yet received it? And friends, this is the truth. See, don't walk away from this thinking, oh, I can have a beer or I can't have a beer. Walk away from this saying that there's Christians that are trying to work this out because they want to clearly present this one truth. That every person in this earth that has ever lived save Jesus is an enemy of God, a rebel against God. We've all turned against him, whether we are wild sinners publicly wrecking our lives or whether we are self-righteous church kids that grow up in the South. All of us have become glory thieves and trusted in ourselves. And we stand opposed to God. And in response to our high treason and rebellion, God sent his son Jesus in the flesh to live the life that you and I should have lived but did not. Obeyed the father perfectly and then willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice on the cross, not just as an example to encourage us towards servant leadership. No, friends. He laid down his life on the cross to bear, to satisfy, to absorb the punishment of all those that would trust and believe in him. God is righteous and holy. And his holiness must be satisfied. And on the cross, Jesus died as a sacrifice, as a substitute for you and me and all that would trust in him. And he absorbed God's wrath. And then he rose again three days later, vindicating God's satisfaction with his work on the cross, vindicating his divinity. And now, even now, commands all people everywhere to repent. Friends, that is you and that is me. Do you realize that all of this is pushing towards that one thing? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus? Are you 70 and you grew up in a church? And you're not sure if you've ever truly done that. Trust in Jesus right now. Are you 11 or 12 and you've been scribbling on the back of the loop and now all of a sudden because I got loud, I got your attention? Young boy, young girl, trust in Jesus. Being a Christian is not a matter of making good decisions about social issues. Being a Christian is whether or not Christ has died for you. And the only way his death becomes yours is when you repent from your sin and self-righteousness and trust, and then you turn in faith towards trust in him. That's it. And when you do that, that becomes evidence that he's made you new. He's given you a new heart. And then the rest of your life radically repositions itself from self-worship and individualism to a sort of God posture whereby the mission of your life and the joy of your life becomes making him known and living in humble, gracious community with other people who are trying to do the very same thing. Have you done that right Yet, have you done that? Then right now, trust in Jesus. We're not going to make you raise your hand or repeat some prayer. Right now, trust in Jesus. Believe. Jesus says, believe, believe, repent and believe. Trust in him. There's no formula. Believe. 
See Jesus. Trust in him. Trust in Jesus right now. What are you trusting in? Some silly idol? The fact that God, maybe in his kindness, made you a little bit better looking than the average cat? Whoop-dee-doo-dah. What are you trusting in? The fact that you live in a particular neighborhood or that you didn't lose your job a month ago? So what? What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in, man? The fact that you haven't wrecked your life publicly? Well, all of us have wrecked our lives internally because we've worshipped other gods, most notably ourselves. What are you trusting in, friend? If you're not a Christian, and if you are a Christian, what are you being seduced by right now? Believe in Jesus. He is more sufficient. He is more lovely. He is altogether good. Come to Christ. Trust right now, even where you are. Don't wait for a song. Don't wait for me to give you something to say with me. Trust in Jesus right now. Turn from self-trust. Turn from sins that destroy you. Turn from that and trust in Jesus. And then you will be his child. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. I pray two things. That you would be so kind to us as a church. For those of us that are already Christians, that we would be roused from our default self-absorption and that you would give us a radical Christ-centeredness that spills over into our deep humility towards others and that you would give us a deep wisdom about how we are still, even though we're Christians, and nothing can snatch us from your hand, that even though we are Christians, we are still very very easily seduced by idols. Would you give us wisdom along those lines? And would you show us those things so that we can continue to repent? Not unto salvation, but we'd repent unto more sanctification. Would you help us with that? And Lord, for the unbelieving friend in this room, maybe they came into this room thinking that they were a Christian already. I think that's probably the case with most of us that grow up in the Bible Belt. We just sort of assume because we get a bulletin from some church or our grandma started some prayer group or something that oh, we're just in it. Lord, would you help us see that deception? And would you maybe for the first time for a person that's in this room cause them to see Jesus clearly? Would you show them that they've been trusting in the false God of their own self and morality and righteousness? But as you say through your prophet, that's like a filthy rag. And today, God, would we, would that person truly trust in Jesus right now by believing in what Jesus has done on the cross and his death, his burial, and his resurrection. God, would that be the one thing that they put their hope in for their right standing between you and them? God, would you make them alive again? And then, Lord, would you set them in a church that believes deeply in the scriptures, whether it be this one or another? God, would you cause that person then to not only trust in you for salvation, but then to connect with your body for growth and godliness? And Lord, I pray that you do these things for your glory and our joy. I pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen.